There are different ways of looking at the world. One view, which is very common today, is that the material world is all that exists. It's called naturalism. What you see is what you get. Explanations of what is and what will be are caused solely by our physical actions, the physical actions of those around us, and the physical environment that we live in. An alternative view sees the world existing within different realms. One realm is material and visible, but there's this spiritual realm, an unseen world. This supernatural worldview is the perspective that Christianity lives within, and Christianity does so with the further clarity that both the material realm on one hand and the spiritual realm on the other are to be the domains ruled by the supreme God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. This has everything to do with today's subject, which is prayer. If there is a spiritual realm and we truly believe in a God of that realm, it would seem inconsistent, even foolish, to engage in our everyday circumstances from only a natural standpoint, trying to live out our lives, be successful, solve our problems solely from our own physical efforts. Especially, what if the God who has revealed himself in Jesus has shown us through time that he wants us to communicate with him and thereby involve his participation so that the world of the unseen impacts that which we do see. This communication with God is called prayer, and prayer has a history. So here's what I'm going to do today. It's a little bit different from the normal. Uh, I want to take us on a journey through the Bible from the lens of prayer, looking at example after example of the seen connecting with the unseen in prayer. And I hope that these case studies through history will broaden our perspective of what prayer is about and convince and propel us to resist living prayerless lives when so much in history is affected by it. In the end, that we would take one step further to be praying individuals and a praying church. So let's begin. The first book in the Bible, you know the story. God creates Adam, they regularly communicate, but it all breaks down when Adam rebels against God. There is a separation between God and man, and the world going forward will not be what it is intended. Genesis chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Peace turns to violence, and by, and by chapter 4 of Genesis, we have the first recorded murder by Adam's son, Cain, killing Abel. But there is a seed of hope. Seth is born, and in mentioning him and his son Enosh, the scripture makes the announcement, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. As history progresses, the family line through which Jesus will ultimately come is Seth's. And of all the characteristics that the author could have used to identify them, he uses the language of prayer. This was a people who call upon the name of the Lord. When somebody uses a phrase to describe you, they do so because it is something that characterizes you. It is, it is typical of you. How typical is prayer? One of the things I love seeing on our staff team these days is that prayer is becoming more characteristic of what we do. I'm observing it less as an add-on and, and a way to bookend a meeting. It's so much more than that, as we will see. A couple of chapters later in Genesis, we see that from Seth's line will come Enoch. And in the genealogy of Genesis 5, it says this. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, 
and he was not, for God took him. So on one hand, we have violence which is escalating in the world so much that it says in chapter 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. But though the world has become corrupt and wicked, yet on the other hand, like Enoch walked with God, the same characteristic is spoken of a man named Noah. In all the wickedness, so much so that God deems it necessary to judge it and start over, there is a man who finds favor with God and his, who is able to live rightly, Noah, a man who walks with God. What happens when you go for a walk with someone? In COVID, I've done a lot more meetings on the go, walking with others than ever before. You're outside, you're moving, and you talk. And, and when you walk with someone, metaphorically speaking, it, it speaks of communication of agreement. You are moving in the same direction, going forward in a right relationship. Walking with God can be exactly that, being in agreement with God and actually physically walking while you talk with him. Uh, this has, in fact, become one of my, my most favorite ways to pray. Now, I don't always do that well sitting still, but moving around, being out there in the outdoors of God's creation, I find it easier to have a conversation. If I'm in a city, I can observe the landmarks and, and pray into those things. I see things to pray into when I walk my neighborhood, as we've done citywide in unison with other churches recently. Prayer can be literally walking with God, and the one man who is able to resist the wickedness of his culture is characterized as doing exactly that. Okay, we touch down next with a man named Abraham. He will be God's chosen to bless the world. And the excerpts in scripture of Abraham's life are often a dialogue between himself and God. His call begins in Genesis chapter 12 with God speaking to him. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Notice that in God's communication with Abraham, direction is given that is to be obeyed. We can so easily gloss over this, but, but look at what God is asking of this man. To leave all that is familiar, including family, in order to get to the blessing that God has for him. Sometimes I hear people almost brag about what they hear from God. And hearing from God is a privileged part of prayer. But as we see in this instance with Abraham, what we hear will sometimes bring us to a place of challenge, of difficult decision. And we don't pray and, and desire to hear from God for the thrill of it so much as to know God and to do his will. Our next touch point in this historical journey is the nation that descended from Abraham now known as Israel. Generations after Abraham, they have become many people, numerous but enslaved by Egypt, and they are treated badly. And though they have embraced the false gods of the country in which they live, they know enough to pray in a way described as follows. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Groaning, a cry for help, a cry for rescue. 
A common theme found in the Old Testament thread of history is that God wants his people to look to him for his help. If you ever been in a bit of a tough spot and thought, well, I don't want to bother God with this, or, or maybe your bent is like a practical atheism in which you default to solve things on your own, and it takes a massive crisis in which you finally realize you don't have what it takes, you aren't enough, and the help of others is not enough, you just can't make your way through. Then, and only then, as a last resort, you turn to God. Well, what if we flipped that around and, and in every circumstance, immediately went to God in prayer for his help? I mean, read the record here. That's what he wants and what you can expect from God, him to act. So let's do that right now. Whatever is your biggest need, I invite you to take it to God right now. Pray in your own words as I pray for all of us. So God, we know that we can come and approach you and, and that you don't push us away, but you actually want us to come to you, Lord, with our challenges, with our difficulties, with our pain. And so, Lord, I wanna pray for, for those that are watching today that, God, we just, we just present to you what's so much on our heart, Lord, that, that problem, that issue that we're so concerned about, and Lord, we place it at your feet, and we ask you, we say, God, would you please, would you please act, would you intervene for our good and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's move on, and as we progress in this historical highlights of conversation with God, known as prayer, in the very next chapter, Exodus chapter three, God answers, and he, he acts and he calls a deliverer named Moses to whom God will reveal himself most fully. Moses will be used by God to do the supernatural, including parting the Red Sea. But even more incredible, Moses, whose desire is to know God and his glory, he will have an incredible relationship with God, with incredible conversations with God. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses and the Israelites came to know God by the personal name Yahweh. And this is capitalized as Lord in your English Bible. And it reveals something about the nature of the God to whom we are praying. Yahweh conveys the idea of God will be whom he will be. That is, he is eternally consistent. When God makes a commitment to something, he will not change. And when he speaks something, he will not go back on his word. The name Yahweh conveys that he is a covenant-keeping God. He is committed to his people, and in the terms of God's commitment, he does not change. He will discipline his people if they sin against him, but they know they can turn back to God and receive his help because his word declares he is committed to them. Later, Israel was led by kings. David is the most well-known, and his life is far from stellar. He commits adultery and murder. He's not a good father. But in his fallenness, he has a heart for God. And we have much instruction on how to communicate with God through his words put to song called Psalms. Looking at David's sung prayers, we see the variety of things we can pray about, but a few things stand out for me. First, a number of David's prayers are vertical. For David, it was, it was not just about what he could get from God, but what he could give to God. Worship. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. 
Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. How often when we set aside time to pray do we fault to prayer requests? And I'm not saying that's all bad. We've already seen God wants us to bring him our needs. But there is so much more to prayer. Like exercise, you don't want to just be doing one thing. And as David did, there's something that changes in us as we make part of our prayer time to, to lift up our thoughts and place them and praise God for who he is. Another thing that strikes you about David is his authenticity with God. We don't need to put on a persona to impress God or, or anyone else. We come to God as we are. In real relationships, we don't hide. Rather than running from the relationships, we share our hearts, our thoughts, and feelings, and sometimes it is raw. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Have you ever had disappointment with God? Of course you have. And what do you do with that? God said that David was a man after his own heart. There is a way to share our heart, our pain with God that is not accusatory, but acknowledges our, our perplexity. And David had lots of that. And in this world of mixture with good and bad, my guess is that you and I will too. And if we bury it, we'll just poison ourselves. If we bring it to God, we'll find him. We'll find him there and we'll wrestle our way through to health. And one of the things about David is that in his authenticity, he had a confident trust that was centered particularly on the steadfast love of God. The Hebrew word for this is chesed. And it has a broad range of meanings, but at the core, it is a covenant-keeping love. As Lauren Daigle sings, more faithful than the rising sun, your love is loyal. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Musician Michael Card wrote a book on the word chesed. 
It took him 10 years. So rich, so deep, so packed with meaning and significance is this word. Card notes, as, as you read the psalm, some of the psalms and the laments and the authentic complaints that are there, suddenly there is a, a change to trust as the subject of God's steadfast, covenant-keeping love enters the conversation. God also revealed his covenant love to David's son Solomon. David loved God's presence, and as he experienced it in prayer and worship, he had this desire to build God a temple as a consistent meeting place for God and his people. But God chose his son Solomon to be the one to do so. And after the temple was completed, God reestablished clarity around how the, the physical world of humanity and God's world and the spiritual realm, realm will relate. And 2 Chronicles 7 is one of, if not the, most familiar passage on prayer in the Old Testament. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, and then these words, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Things won't go well for Israel if they rebel against God. There will be discipline, but there's always a way back with God. It's a turning, and that's what prayer does. It, it turns our attention, our, our focus, our desires back to God in what we call repentance, humbling ourselves in our conversation with God, saying sorry with the intent to change our actions to align with God's commands. We fast forward to another king as our next touch point in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat, king of the southern kingdom called Judah, is threatened with war by ensuing nations. It says, after this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon, Tamar, that is the Engedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat reminds God of his promises to Solomon. This is something you see in the prayers of God's people, rehearsing God's promises. Maybe it's not so much that like God is forgotten and he needs to be reminded, but that it builds our faith and boldness in us to pray. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Jehoshaphat concludes his prayer with these powerful, powerful words that instruct us all. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What a posture. It says that all of Judah was standing before the Lord, Yahweh, wives, little ones, children, the whole nation and families fasting, praying, seeking the Lord. Judah is a religious nation, but the concept of corporate prayer should not be lost on us here. It's also the principle of fasting. When something is this important, when your nation is threatened, it calls for serious measures. Everybody prays. 
and does so with fasting. I think of our nation and our world. Is everything well? I think it's actually really serious out there. I, I know it is. Pandemic, division, abortion, and cultural trends so twisted that the things that God calls good are despised. Where Christian faith is on rapid decline and, and the rise of what we call the nuns, that is, no faith at all, is consistently growing. And where's the power of the Spirit in the church? We need a turnaround. And it begins with prayer. When God hears and God acts and trajectories of history are changed as it did for Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's story is remarkable. Hearing the prayers of the people, God tells them they won't need to fight at all. And Jehoshaphat executes a remarkable strategy. The, the worshipers go out ahead of their army. I mean, who does that? And guess what they are to sing? Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And then it says, and, and when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. In the Hebrew Bible, it's arranged so that Chronicles is actually the last book of the Old Testament. We don't have time to, to do more touch points, and, and there are so many more. So let's assume we've reached the end of the old and transition briefly into the new. Jesus arrives on the scene, and he is Jewish, and so the stories of prayer and the people of prayer that we have talked about are his story. And he does not so much as discard them, but transforms them into something more accessible and powerful to all of us. He teaches a prayer to his disciples that encourages all to approach God on an intimate level. Pray like this, he said, our Father. Approaching God with reverence because he is in that other realm of the heaven, and he is holy, but we can do so as a child, speaking to his papa, our father. And from that position, asking God to bring the realm of heaven, where the things that are right in heaven come to the realm on earth, where that is not the case. In Luke's gospel, where the humanity of Jesus is emphasized, we see Jesus often praying, teaching us, if the Son of God found it so important to practice prayer, how important should it be for us? In going to the cross, Jesus makes a way for all his children to have access to God, to pray in his name with no need for the blood of animals sacrificed to, to cover for their sins. In rising from the dead, he now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding, representing us before God as a great high priest, while at the same time, he has poured out his Holy Spirit who helps us to pray. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Through Jesus, when it comes to prayer, we are set up for success. And that's exactly what the early church does. When Jesus leaves this realm for the heavenly realm, his followers focus their time in prayer. 120 people in an upper room, unified in one accord. The church is birthed in that environment. And the rest of the story we read in the book of Acts is salted with the prayers of God's people and the response of God through his Holy Spirit turning the world upside down. We are in a time when the strategies of men to run the church and reach our world are simply not enough. And really, they never were. 
As God's people, we have always been called to be a people who are characterized by prayer. Not a specific few of us, but all of us. Like skating is to hockey or a stove is, an oven is to baking. Prayer is needful, necessary. I like to read history from the lens of prayer. And you see these movements that have happened because of God's people decided to call out to God. And, and the environment around them was literally turned upside down. Cities transformed, workplaces changed, families made whole, and large numbers of people made right in their relationship with God when we pray. We are at the beginning of a focused time of prayer in this church. At centralheights.ca slash 21 days, there are resources and times and places of prayer listed as opportunities for all of us to engage in. How is God asking you to participate with him? Today we've talked about like numerous ways that prayer is practiced. Where is the next step of practice for you? Calling out to God, walking with God, getting honest with God, Worshiping God, listening to God, approaching him as a father, praying with others, focusing on his steadfast covenant, keeping love, repenting, fasting, asking him to change you and change your world. Prayer has that kind of history. 